Uh, the Good Place uh, is a show about the afterlife. It's got an interesting take on heaven and hell, on ethics and punishment and reward. Uh, and without giving away the storyline, uh, Ted Danson's character has the ability to reboot the afterlife for the humans in his care. And every time things get out of control, he just clicks his fingers and he gets to start all over again. Uh, Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever get to the end of a day and you've messed things up so badly you wish you could just start again? Click your fingers and begin the day afresh. Perhaps it's an old sin you've fallen into again and you're filled with guilt and shame and worthlessness or you've made a bad choice and one thing led to another and by the end of the day everything's a disaster or you spoke without thinking or lost your temper and hurt someone deeply and you're not sure you can fix it. Well, in today's story about Jacob and his daughter Dinah, the mess and the mistake seem to reach their maximum. It's hard to imagine how things could get much worse. And it's not just Jacob. Everybody messes up. Isn't that right? If ever there was a day where you'd want to click your fingers and start again, surely this is it. But what we're going to see is that despite this day or this period of days, Despite the messiness of the sin, the yuckiness, despite it all, God reaffirms his promises that he's already made to Jacob. It's astounding, isn't it? He reaffirms it. It's almost like he's resetting things for Jacob and giving him the chance to start fresh. By the end of chapter 34, things are an absolute mess, but 14 verses later, by by verse 14 of chapter 35, the feeling is quite different. It's hopeful. It's like God has clicked his fingers and Jacob gets to start fresh. Now, of course, there are still consequences for sinful actions. People have been murdered. Lives have been trashed. But through it all, God's commitment is unchanged. Uh, There's a sign I sometimes see over desks of admin or help staff and it says your lack of planning doesn't constitute an emergency on my part. Have you ever seen that sign? Your lack of planning doesn't constitute an emergency on my part. In other words, just because you've messed things up and you're in a, in a, in a mess, that doesn't mean I should drop everything to help you. I, I may be able to but don't demand it, don't expect it. But there is a sense in which God is doing exactly that. He's saying, I'm always committed to helping you, however much you mess up. I will jump. This is an emergency and I'm happy to help. Your lack of planning, your messing things up completely, I'm going to step in again. That's great news for us, isn't it? There is no mess that's too great for God to forgive. There is no pit that's so deep God can't reach and bring us out of it. Uh, last week we saw how Jacob had fled to uh, fled his brother Esau. So uh, right down the bottom left there you can see maybe Beersheba in, in, a, in a little box. Uh, he fled Beersheba, bottom left, and uh, 
eventually made his way to Uncle Laban in uh, Haran, which is up in the top right. But along the way, chapter 28, he had a dream about a staircase up to heaven, angels were travelling up and down, God appeared to him and promised him the same blessings he promised his father Abraham, his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, to make his descendants into a nation, to give them the land and that all people on earth would be blessed through him. Uh, Jacob called that place Beth-El, the house of God and you can see that sort of uh, just up above Beersheba, mid-bottom left. Uh, And he keeps travelling north to meet Laban in Haran. Long story short, 20 years later, we saw last week, he ends up with two wives, two concubines, at least 11 sons and one daughter. Uh, He flees Laban, hears that Esau's coming out to meet him, then once again he meets God. And uh, that's by the Jabok River, which is sort of as, yeah, just, yeah, I don't know if you can see that. It's where the green and the red lines meet. There's the Jabok River. Uh, and he wrestles, chapter 32, he wrestles with a mysterious man, refuses to give in until the man blesses him. Jacob gets a new name, Israel, because he struggled with God. And Jacob calls that place. Uh, Peniel, the face of God. Chapter 33, he meets Esau. Things go better than he'd hoped and he's actually back in the land of Canaan. Esau wants him to head back down to Beersheba to uh, where Esau's living near Seir. We don't know exactly where that is. Uh, But Jacob stops short of heading back down to where Esau is and he only makes it as far as the town of Shechem, which is off there to the left. Uh, the town of Shechem and by the end of chapter 33 he he buys a a field, he pitches a tent outside this town of Shechem and that's where our story begins for today. The start of chapter uh, 34, Dinah, his only daughter or the only daughter we know about, goes out to meet some of the local women, apparently on her own. I'm guessing a campsite of 11 brothers means she's keen for some female company but tragedy strikes. (coughs) <coughs> when Shechem, son of Hamor, sees her, he's the, far, the son of the local ruler, seems as if he's used to getting what he wants. Verse 2, he sees her, takes her and violates her. But then he rather decides he likes her and wants to keep her. So verse 3, he decides to chat her up. First the sex, then the romance. Verse 3, his heart was drawn to Dinah and he loved her and he speaks tenderly to her. And then in verse 4, he speaks a little less tenderly to his father, get her for me, get this girl for my wife. Seems like a nice piece of work, doesn't he? But then verse 5, the attention shifts back to Jacob. He's somehow found out about it, but he keeps quiet about it until his sons come home. Now when your daughter doesn't come home or maybe she does come home when she's meant to and the word, uh, you find out that she has been violated like this, how are you meant to react? Because the bizarre thing is when Jacob gets the news he does nothing. Now I'm not sure exactly what I want him to do but I want him to do something to show that he cares. 
Love doesn't do nothing, love does something. Jacob says nothing and does nothing. Maybe he's scared of creating a scene without his sons there to back him up. Notice though, from here on in, it's his sons who fill the void left by Dad's abdication. Hamor comes along to talk to Jacob, verse 6, but it's his sons who take over. They come in from the fields as soon as they hear and they're furious. I think that's what I want my family to do if I'm dying. They're furious because it's a disgraceful thing that's been done. And Jacob's sons, Jacob's sons are intent on making Shechem pay, as usual with his family in a deceitful way. Hamor turns up with smooth words and a dangerously deceptive offer. Uh, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Okay, let's be real here. He may have gone a little far, but let's turn this into a win-win. We can still do a deal. Intermarry with us, he says, verse 9. You're on the edge of town anyway. Come and join us. Let's give us your daughters and we'll give you our daughters. Settle, live, trade, do deals. Except down in verse 20 you can see the danger because as Hamor is selling this plan to the townsmen, he says, let's do the deal, but the reality is he's planning a takeover. He says, let's do what they're asking because verse 23, won't their livestock, property and animals become ours? He's been dangling what sounds like an attractive offer for Jacob and the sons, but his plan is actually just to absorb them until there's nothing left of this special family. Uh, It's the distinctiveness, it's the danger when God's people get too close, when God's people lose their distinctiveness of just being absorbed. But notice too, Jacob's sons have a plan of their own. Verse 13, they reply deceitfully, typical of this family. There's a sort of mock indignation as they spell out their conditions. They say, they say there's no way we can let our sister marry someone uncircumcised. Uh, we'll agree on one condition, that you and all your men and the whole town get circumcised. If you do that, then we'll settle among you and become one people with you. If not, we'll just take our sister and go. Hamel Shechem agree. What's perhaps even more strange, the rest of the townsmen agree as well. And verse 24, every male in the city is circumcised, they're in considerable discomfort, at which point Simeon and Levi, verse 25, uh, Dinah's full brothers, take their swords, storm the city, kill every male. Verse 26, they put Hamor to the sword, Shechem to the sword, they take Dinah from Shechem's house, She's either been there the whole time or perhaps the marriage has taken place. I've asked the question in a couple of Bible study groups this week what they reckon and we can't quite work it out. So if you've got any better ideas, let me know. Uh, But they take Dinah back and they leave, mission accomplished. But then Jacob's other sons, verse 27, they come and loot the city. And all the flocks and the herds become theirs, the wealth, the women, the children, everything becomes theirs. It's a reversal of what Hamel thought would happen. Uh, It's extreme revenge, isn't it? It's punishment that's far worse than the crime. One man's lust 
means they kill every man. One man's impulsive action to take one woman means they take every woman. One deceptive plan to take Israel's livestock by assimilation, the sons of Jacob take it by annihilation. Uh, It's vengeance that goes way beyond the original crime. It's the exact scenario, by the way, that God's law that was codified later by Moses of an eye for an eye was meant to prevent. It was meant to stop this sort of unjust justice that just ramped up all the time. Notice we still haven't heard anything from Jacob. Not a word. In previous chapters he would have been at the front of the queue when it came to the, the sneaky schemes but now nothing. And yet finally verse 30 he speaks and he says to Simeon and Levi, boys you've gone too far. Well, no thanks to Jacob's leadership mind you. He's sat on his hands the whole way through but he's right, they've gone way too far. Not that he's critiquing the the horrible injustice and violence of it, mind you, just that they've upset the neighbours. You've brought trouble on me, he says, by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in the land. We're few in number. If they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. He doesn't seem to mind the huge overreaction and the the death of all the males of the city and the, the women and the children being kidnapped just the consequences for him. It's like a mother who says to her son, stop punching your brother, you're getting blood on the carpet, go outside. Well, to which the sons reply, verse 31, someone had to stand up for her. Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? And that's how the chapter finishes, with a question mark. The chapter finishes with a question mark, which I think is ironic really because that's pretty much the whole chapter, isn't it? One big question mark. What should they have done? Who does behave rightly? Why is this whole chapter here to begin with? There's a question mark. Because there's no one who's done the right thing, is there? Shechem, no self-control, lust. Jacob, does nothing. Hamor and the townspeople, so greedy they'll do anything for a dollar and I mean anything. Simeon and Levi, who make the opposite mistake to Dad, they overreact. And then the other brothers who knew about the plan all along and then just sort of take advantage and loot the city. It's the sort of episode where you just get to the end of it and you, you just want to click your fingers, don't you, and start again. But it's at this point that God steps into the mess. At the start of chapter 35, and he tells Jacob to go where he should have gone in the beginning. Go to Bethel. Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Go back where God had promised that I won't leave you until I've done everything I've promised. 
Jacob seems to have forgotten about it and he's got waylaid and he's got lost. And so verse 1 being placed here, God speaks, it's suggesting that maybe Jacob needs to bear some responsibility for the mess that's happened. Maybe if he had headed back to Bethel in the first place or maybe to Beersheba where Dad is or even to Seir where his brother Esau is then maybe none of chapter 34 would have happened. But now God enters the mess to set things right and he says, go to Bethel like you should have in the beginning and so Jacob goes and he separates himself from the surrounding people like he should have done in the first place. They bury their foreign gods, they, they bury their earrings, they change their clothes, this is a fresh start. And verse 6, they make it to Bethel, God protects them along the way, finally there's no one who's chasing them. They build an altar, they worship God like they should have done in the start. If they'd done that, perhaps none of 34, chapter 34 would have happened. And it seems like things are back on track. It's a fresh start. And if you look down to verse 9, we get this familiar refrain. God blesses Jacob, reminds him of his new name and then renews the promises. Have a look at verse 9 and see if it sounds familiar. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said, God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob, your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. There's a hint that we're starting fresh, isn't it? That's straight from Genesis. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you and I'll give this land to your descendants after you. It's all very familiar, isn't it, these words? In fact, so familiar that some scholars reckon it's just been grabbed from somewhere else and put here by mistake by some editor somewhere, sometime. But I think it's here for a reason. It's comforting. It's comforting for Jacob. It's comforting for us. It's like a plane that goes through a terrible storm and turbulence and everything's flying around the cabin. Everyone's panicking but now the storm's over and at that point the captain's calm, steady voice comes over the intercom. It's alright, we've experienced some turbulence but everything's fine, we're going to be landing five minutes late. (sighs) And everyone can calm down again. The captain's got things in control. It's like God has clicked his fingers and reset everything back to default settings, restore to factory settings. Despite the questions, despite the mess, despite the sinfulness, the pain and the sin, things are back on track. The promises are still in place. Jacob's disobedience has led people off target for a while. People have suffered. Yes, there will still be consequences for those mistakes. People will have to live out the effects of that sin. But God's purposes are bigger than man's stuff-ups. God's purposes are bigger than man's stuff-ups. Which is just as well for us, isn't it? (laughs) 
So what do we do with it all? I don't know about you, but it leaves me with a nasty taste in my mouth. And, you know, as I look out there at the faces of you as we're going through chapter 34, I can say there's not a lot of smiles as uh, we're going through. Jacob's family is a disaster. This dysfunctional family with multiple wives and out of control kids. And yet, that's the line that God blesses. One of his children, Judah, becomes a descendant of Jesus, the ultimate king, our king. And then following Jesus, Jacob's family is replaced by a new family, God's church, followers of Jesus from every nation, including us. We're that new family, that dysfunctional, messed up family who are also called to be different, called to build a better people of God who are holy and separate. And so I guess there are warnings here, warnings about mistakes to avoid, perhaps for dads, but also for sons and daughters too, mistakes of being disconnected when we should be connected. Maybe that's something dads will typically do. Mistake of keeping quiet for the sake of a bit of peace and quiet and maybe we need to stand up. Mistake of not protecting when we should be protecting, of compromising. Uh, There's a bigger mistake to avoid though. Uh, It's a lesson about blending in with the people around us uh, when we should be distinct. A lesson about not letting the world contaminate and pollute. Uh, We should be different. And that was the point, as much as we can work out who the very first hearers of these stories were, that's the point for them. Probably Moses wrote all this down as Israel was wandering through the wilderness, about to enter the promised land. And Moses says, here's what happened to the forefathers, don't follow them. When we get in there, avoid the nations. Don't intermarry, don't mingle, don't follow their gods. Be a holy people. And it's a lesson for us as well as this new family of God. Jesus said the same thing. He says you are to be salt of the earth. You are to be light of the world. Let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and say, well, good deeds, I don't see too many of them around and praise your God in heaven. We're to be distinct. We're to be distinct in our attitudes, in how we treat people, in the people we choose not to ignore. We're to be different in the way we speak when we don't put people down or gossip. We're to be different in the way we work with integrity and patience and honesty. We're to be different in the way we parent, to lead as servants without pride or anger wanting what's best for our children. We're to be different as children in how we obey and honour our parents and teachers and bosses and coaches, how we show respect, children who are honest and open and trust the judgement of those over them. We're to be different in our attitude to money, to be content, to be generous. We're to be different as individuals and different as families. We're to be different as a church 
If we're serious about being different, we should see it in how we treat each other. Don't leave someone standing on their own at church. Talk to someone else. If you see someone you haven't met before, go and introduce yourself. Uh, We're to be different. That's the way the world works, but not us. All sorts of suggestions about how you can be different. But let's be honest, we're not going to measure up to all of that. There'll be times when we fail, but remember when we fail, and we will, There'll be days when you and I mess up so bad we just want to hit the delete button and start again. Remember God's commitment to you does not depend on your inability or your ability to keep these commands. It's all about what Jesus has done. We need to cling on to him and that's the way that we really can be different from the people around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You might help us to learn lessons uh, from Jacob, uh, lessons about how we should respond to sin, lessons about our own heart. But more than anything, Lord, may these lessons drive us to the Lord Jesus in humility and repentance, uh, to drive us to Jesus in terms of the example to follow, uh, the King to serve, and the one we want to give honour and glory to. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.